Um, we finished today. Um, thanks for everybody who, who've asked and prayed for us. Uh, we appreciate that. We finished today this series that we've called A New Hope. Um, it's still January, but, the, but for some of us, there still is this sense of, can 2017 be different than 2016, 15, 14, all those other years? You know, is, is this the year? Is this the year that I can find somebody to be in a relationship with? Is this the year that maybe we'll have a baby or, or maybe we've already got kids and this just reminds us that we have hope for our kids that maybe this will be the year that they turn the corner spiritually, academically, some, some way, that, that something will happen in the lives of our kids. For some of us, we still have hopes, 2017, <sighs> somewhere, somewhere, you know, that this might be the year for our particular sports team. And for some of us, um, we think, oh, you know what, maybe this year is the year I can go on the trip. Maybe this year is the year that I can g get everything set to be able to retire. And I don't have anything up here, but um, some of us hope 2017, can it be the year that my body actually changes and gets smaller? You know, uh, we go through that process. Here's the thing I want to tell you. Our hope will always fail if it's not in Jesus. Jesus is the only one. It's the, he's the only place that we can put our hope that we know that we won't be disappointed. Um, our hope can't come from a new president or a new administration. Our hope can't come from protest of a new president or administration. Our hope can only come from Jesus. I, wanna, I do want to take a, a, just a second and pray for President Trump right now. Let's do that. Um, Lord, <clears throat> we know that this seems like a crazy time whenever it happens, but it seems especially crazy this year. And Lord, we collectively ask that you would be with President Trump, that you would give him wisdom that is far beyond his competence, and that you would, <clears throat> you would help him to turn to you and seek you as he makes decisions. God, give him, give him wisdom, guide in the process as he, as he chooses his cabinet and advisors. God, as he makes uh, changes uh, in, in direction for things, uh, Lord, help him to, to humbly seek you and to hear your voice. God, be with us as a country, as a nation, and, um, and help us, Lord, to follow as he leads to trust you in the process. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A new hope, it can only be found in Jesus. Jesus' most famous message, the, the sermon that um, is the most famous of all of Jesus' talks is called the Sermon on the Mount. And um, this, this series that we've talked about, A New Hope, that really kind of starts the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to continue to preach through the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to change the kind of the packaging of it next week with a new kind of chapter in our series called Heart Attack. Um, and, and the reason it's called Heart Attack is because Jesus, as he spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the next uh, sections of his message, he spoke right to the heart. He spoke about the fact that Jesus wasn't concerned about building a system of religion, uh, about all these do's and don'ts. Jesus was concerned about our hearts. And much of what he spoke 
in that, ser- in that message uh, uh, got right to the core of who we are, the way that we think, the way that we act. And so this next series is going to be called Heart Attack, Don't Miss It. Um, I want to encourage you, uh, if you, if you would, start this afternoon and just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read it multiple times. It's not a lot. Um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount will transform your life, transform the way that you think. As I listened last week, uh, this, this past week, to Chris's two messages while I was gone, I was listening to him talk about the Beatitudes, the, the opening section uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, and then the section that immediately follows the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. It occurred to me, and, I, and I'm not sure why it was, but something in Chris's, in Chris, Chris's um, wording made me think, when Jesus spoke to that vast crowd, he didn't speak to the crowd as a whole. He spoke to individual people. Jesus, by the power of God, knew the story of each person who was listening to him. And so when Jesus spoke and said, blessed are the merciful, I think he looked at somebody whose life was characterized by mercy. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, he was looking directly at someone who, was, who just was grieving deeply at that point in time. Jesus didn't use that, that um, speaking to individual people, looking them in the eye as a speaking technique to keep the attention of the audience. He did it because he knew people. Um, when I was on the cruise, I did something unusual one morning, something I've never done before. I went to an art lecture. It was there. I could do it. I thought that that sounds pretty interesting. One of the one of the uh, one of the paintings that the that the that the lecturer talked about was this painting by Da Vinci of Lisa del Gion Greco, the Mona Lisa. Uh, she talked about it, and one of the things that makes this this painting so famous is Mona Lisa's eyes. No matter where you are, it looks like she's looking at you, right? So you guys on this side, she's looking right at you, isn't she? And you guys on this side, she's looking right at you. You guys in the center, she's looking right at you. That's the picture of Jesus as he spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. As he taught, the crowds individually thought, Jesus is talking right to me. Now, if I left Mona Lisa up there for the entire message, some of you would get really creeped out, right? It would be like, stop that, turn her off. What's she thinking? Why she got that little half smile? Why is she looking at me? Jesus, when he spoke, I think that there were some people that said, man, he's cutting right to where I live. Make him stop. Because Jesus knew and his message transformed. When he said to the crowd, he, he had just said to the crowd as he started, if you are hurting in your spirit, if you're mourning, if the world thinks you're weak, if the world thinks you crazy, you're crazy because you pursue spiritual things, if you show mercy, if you have a pure heart, if you try and make peace, if you're being persecuted, take heart. Have hope. You're going to be taken care of because God sees you. He knows where you live. He's going to minister to you in the most perfect way possible. 
And out of that introduction, out of that, those, that first, those first truths that Jesus teaches, he steps into a section of scripture that we're going to look at today. So if you've got your phones, take them out and open the North Point app. There'll be some fill-in-the-blank things that you can do. If you've got your Bibles, take them out and turn to Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one out of the back of the pew and find Matthew towards the end, back towards the back third of the Bible or so. And hear these words of Jesus as he's just said, take hope, take hope, there's a new hope for you. He says, beginning in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Imagine living in a world with no supermarkets, with no Walmart, no Meyer, no Kroger, no refrigerator, no freezer, and you've got, to, you've got to have meat to eat, but there isn't any way to preserve it. Meat rots unless it's preserved either by salt or by smoke. And Galilee doesn't have a lot of trees, and so smokehouses weren't something that they used. They used salt to preserve the meat. Imagine living in a world with no electricity, the only light is that from the sun or the moon or the stars or a candle or a lamp, a lantern or a campfire. Imagine living in a world with no pharmacies, no drugstores, no antibiotics. Medical care consists of herbal medicines and what we would call homeopathic care. Imagine living in a world where an infection can kill you. You're living in a small country under the control of a world power. Your leaders are corrupt and tyrannical, and there isn't anything that you can do about it. Your life seems small and insignificant. And you hear this Jewish teacher, this Jewish rabbi say, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And your mind starts to spin because salt's an essential part of your life. You know how valuable salt is. You know that, that the Roman soldiers are paid with money to buy salt. That's, that's a part of their package. The word is salarium. It's interestingly enough the word that we get our word salary from. All tied to salt. Even today, salt's a big deal to us. We salt our eggs. We salt our steaks. We salt our potatoes. We salt um, our french fries. We salt everything, right? Why? Because salt flavors our food. Salt adds seasoning and spice that makes that food much more compelling. It adds a zip to, it, it transforms food that sometimes is just kind of rather bland, and it changes it and makes it remarkable. 
It flavors what we eat so that we want more of it because of the salt. Salt provides a seasoning that creates this lasting impression, this desire to come back for more, this sense of memory that's tied to that food because of the flavor that salt provides. Last week, when we were on a cruise, one of the ports that we stopped at was in St. Thomas. And one of the things that I learned, I had never been in that part of the country before, didn't know a lot about it, but St. Thomas and many of the islands were a, a, a mainstay for explorers from Columbus all the way up into the colonial period, into the 1700s, because of the amount of salt that was available on, those, on their islands. St. Thomas in particular has three ponds that the, that the water in those ponds has an excessive amount of salinity to it. And, um, and so the sun comes out and dries up that water and it creates this layer of salt that's there just ready to be harvested. And the, the sailors, as they traveled from the Americas on to the south, or as they headed back to Europe, would stop in the islands, stop at St. Thomas to get salt because salt preserved their food. It didn't just add flavor preserved their food, and allowed them to have meat that they could eat the entire journey. Salt preserves. It has this incredible ability to stop decay, to protect what it comes in contact with. It even has the ability to heal flesh that's infected. Have you ever been to the ocean and gone swimming and had a cut or a hangnail? You jump in that water and all of a sudden it's like it has your full attention because of the salt in that wound. I talked to somebody before for service, and we were talking about the cruise, and he told me about his brother, and he said his brother shaved his head in the morning on the ship, which is a little dangerous to begin with, and then went out and swam in the ocean and jumped in the water and said that it lit him up because of, of the damage that he had done to his head. Salt allows our flesh to heal after time, the pain recedes. Jesus looked into the eyes of the people gathered on the hillside, into the eyes of his disciples, and he said, you are the salt of the earth. You're living in a pretty bland world, a world that's decaying, and you add flavor, you add seasoning, you add spice to that world. You preserve it, you keep it from dying. Understand this, you keep the world together simply by your presence. Jesus didn't say your job is to be salt or when I ascend into heaven, you'll be salt then. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Clovis Chapel, an American minister who lived during the first half of the 20th century, wrote these words, you are the salt of the earth. If this is taken as a declaration of our privileges, it flings a blow of hope athwart our skies beautiful and alluring beyond all our dreams. If it's taken as a declaration of our obligations and responsibilities, it becomes an epitome of all the commandments and a summing up of the whole duty of man. If it is taken as a statement of fact, as it surely is, it becomes the highest of all compliments, you are the salt of the earth. Chapel went on to say, salt's something that cannot be ignored. Sometimes its presence is exceedingly welcomed. 
At other times, it's keenly resented, but it always must be recognized. Another commentator said the most obvious general characteristic of assault is that it is essentially different from the medium into which it's put. The power of salt lies in its difference from that which it comes in contact with. In order for salt to function, it has to be in contact with another object. In order for salt to preserve meat, it has to contact the meat to lose itself in that outer layer of the meat. Salt that never interacts with the meat won't preserve the meat. The meat will still decay. It has to be rubbed in. Salt that stays in the shaker on the counter will not flavor your dinner. It only, comes, it only happens when it comes in contact with the food that it begins to season. As followers of Jesus, we've got to be in contact with the world to be the salt of the earth. If the salt stays in the container, everyone loses. If Christians aren't involved in the Chamber of Commerce or the Lions Club or the Kiwanis or politics or the YMCA, everyone loses. If followers of Jesus aren't involved in athletic leagues, in foster care, in adoption, in our schools, in our government, everyone loses. If Christians aren't helping with human trafficking, with substance abuse, with literacy, with medical care, everyone loses. I'm a little bit past my prime athletically. Um, but there was a time that I really liked to play church softball. I thought church softball was one of the greatest things in the world. Um, about 20 years ago, my perspective changed because I realized that in all the church softball leagues that I played in, there were all these teams from other churches, and it really didn't represent Christ very well. Um, oftentimes, there were fussing and feuding over all kinds of stuff. And, and what changed in me was the decision that we made at the church where I served to have, a, to have a team from our church play in a rec league. Because we played in the community rec league, and in that context, the salt of the team was in direct contact with the world around us. In that context, we could demonstrate what it looked like to play well and win well with grace. We demonstrated what it could be like to lose well with grace. And we demonstrated what it looked like to, to be active, to play with our whole hearts, and to realize that it was just a game, and that the people were the most important thing. We are salt in our community, in our place of employment, in our homes. To those of you who live in messy homes, homes filled with dysfunction and strife. You are salt there. Kids, if your parents are fighting, if, they're on the, if they've split or if they're on the verge of splitting, you are salt in that home. Be salt, flavor, season, preserve. John writes about the church in Laodicea in Revelation and, and he says that, Jesus says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you from my mouth. The church in Laodicea had lost its saltiness. If we're not in contact with the world around us, if our only interaction is with other Christian friends and family, we have lost our saltiness. 
And Jesus says, the only thing that we're good for is the trash pile. We often spend more time concerned about flavoring each other as followers of Jesus than about preserving others who don't know him. Jesus said to his audience, you are the salt of the earth, a flavoring, a preservative. And then he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Earlier I said, imagine a world with no electricity. I've, I've done that a couple of times in my life. In about 2010, I went on a mission trip to the most remote place in the earth I've ever been personally. It was in the, the southern tip of the state of Durango in Mexico in the Sierra Madre Mountains. Um, I flew into Mazatlan, and at sea level in Mazatlan, we traveled a couple of hours to a little town, a town of about 10,000 people, where we got all the supplies because once we reached the tribal people that we were going to help with, I worked with a, a team from New Tribes, uh, that was going in to, to share the gospel um, with the Nahuatl people. Um, everything that we took, we had to take, everything that we needed, we had to take with us. And we went from that, that town of about 10,000 people and we traveled from about 1,000 feet at, uh, above sea level up to about 7,000 feet above sea level, top of the mountain, down the other side, down, back down to about 1,000 feet above sea level back to the top of a second mountain that was about 6,200 feet above sea level. When we reached the top of that mountain, the only running water that there was there was a small creek that the water ran through. Um, the, the thing that was so interesting to me, we, we didn't have any electricity, doing everything by hand. And the only light that we had, the only light that we had was the sun or the moon or the stars or a small lantern. And you know what we did that entire week as we worked? When the sun came up in the morning, when the sky was lit long before we could see the sun above the horizon, when the, but when the light started to hit the, the, the uh, sky, we got up and we started to work. And we worked all day. And when the sun went down, we went to bed because uh, that was the only time that we could work. And when the sun came out in the morning, it woke us up because light awakens people. Light wakes us up. Um, last week on our cruise, Deb and I had an interior stateroom. Um, that really means two things. The first thing it means is that we're cheap, okay? Uh, we, we didn't want to spend the money for a room with a balcony, so we're in an interior stateroom, um, a, a room in the center of the ship. The second thing that it meant was that our room was incredibly dark, when we shut the door at night, no other lights, you couldn't, you couldn't see anything in that room. And, and that, was, that, was, that was both wonderful and terrible. The thing that was wonderful was that um, when we went to bed at night, we slept until we woke up the next morning with no idea what time it was. It was great. Until we reached a port of call and we wanted to get off the ship and not miss stuff there. Without setting an alarm, you know, we could have slept until 10, 11, 12, whatever it was, and missed that opportunity completely. It was, it was wonderful to be able to sleep, but the, we needed the light to wake us up. 
We also needed the light to illuminate the room. Because when I woke up in the middle of the night and had to go to the bathroom, I'm in a different place, didn't know what's going on. The, the dangers that existed just simply from stuff, that shoes on the floor, and not being able to know which way to go was very real. What I had to do was reach over and press the, uh, the on switch on my phone to get light off the face of my phone to be able to see in the room. Light illuminates. And when it does... It's able to highlight danger. It's able, light is able to comfort a child who's scared and show them that the monsters are only imaginary. Light's able to highlight a path to, to show the way down a curving road, to show the way to a person's destination. Light illuminates. It awakens. It illuminates. I read some interesting things about light this week. Um, we kind of know this inherently, but light impacts a person's health. Well, for, for many of us here in Michigan during the winter, we suffer from a vitamin D deficiency because we don't see the light that much. Um, many of us know about seasonal affective disorder that happens where this depression settles on people because they miss the light. They need the light. One of the most interesting things that I read was, a, it was about a study that was done about people with broken bones. And what the study discovered was that a, a broken bone will heal seven to ten days faster if the patient is in a room with a window to outside light than if they're in a room with no windows. That's crazy. Light brings health to us. It, um, it illuminates. It um, wakes us up. It protects us. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel and cover it up? No, they put it on a lampstand. It gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Some commentators believe that as Jesus was speaking, the crowd could look up on the hillside there in Galilee, above the Sea of Galilee, and see the 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 town, the city that was on top of one of those mountains called Safed. It was a town that they would have recognized because uh, even though it was daytime when Jesus was talking, they had traveled at night. They had looked around and they had recognized the signs of the city, the lights in the, in the homes, the campfires around the city. So when Jesus said, a city set on a hill can't be hidden, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Don't wait to be a light. Let your light shine wherever you are. Don't hide that light. That doesn't make any sense at all. Let your light shine so that the people around you will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you understand that people can't see what you believe? People can't see what you believe. They can only see what you do as a result of that belief. They can only see the expression of the gospel in your life. Let your light shine so that people will see that light. See your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The purpose of salt is to flavor and preserve. The purpose of light is to wake people up, to illuminate the darkness. The purpose of the church is to impact the world. This passage of scripture for me changes the way that I think about the church. Church is not a place that you go to find fellowship and get encouraged and get fed and be part of an institution. 
The purpose of the church is to be the light of the world. Uh, Bob Russell was the preacher for about 40 years at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, when he went there, the church was about 120. When he retired, the church was more than 18,000. Um, it's now a church of about 20,000. He said something that, that to, has stuck with me. He said this, the church is the only organization that does not exist for itself. Understand this, the church as an organization, doesn't exist to feed itself. It exists to come in contact with the world, to be salt and light, to be salt and preserve and flavor, to be light, to shed into the darkness of the world. Like salt and light, the church is fundamentally different than the world. As followers of Jesus, our role is to flavor and preserve, to awaken and illuminate the world around us. The church filled with followers of Jesus cannot be a country club that isolates itself from the issues of life, but a crew of first responders that actively engage people in danger, people who are in crisis. The mission of Southeast is interesting. It's been their mission for decades. Uh, it's, a, it, it's the Southeast Christian Church exists to evangelize the lost, to edify the saved, to minister to those in need, and here's the thing that's interesting to me, and to be a conscience in the community. To be a conscience in the community. That's salt. That's light in a dark place. Our mission at North Point, do you know what it is? Can you say it? Our mission is to help all people what? Move to a life fully devoted to Jesus. To help all people move to a life fully devoted to Jesus Christ. We believe in discipleship. We believe in helping people grow into the likeness of Jesus. We absolutely believe in reaching lost people who don't yet know Jesus as well, who have never experienced his grace and love. We live in a place in Clinton County, 85,000 people. Shiawassee County, about 70,000 people. City of Lansing, 115,000 people. In those three pockets... There's a quarter of a million people that are right here in our backyard. A quarter of a million people. People who struggle to find purpose in their lives. People without hope for the future. People whose marriages are breaking, who struggle with addiction. People whose children are growing up with a worldview that doesn't include Jesus. People who are dying inside, who are lonely, who feel hopeless, and who try and mask that emptiness with busyness and pursuing success and toys and trips and empty relationships. People who are angry and hurting and bitter, they fill our backyard. Our vision, our vision is to impact 50,000 people in the next five years with the grace of of Jesus personally. We think that, that that's a God-sized vision, something that's so big only that he can do. We believe that that's what God has called us to. You know, as, as we sensed the, form, the formulation of that vision, 50,000 people in five years impacted by the grace of Jesus, um, I've struggled with two things. The first thing is this. How, do we keep track of the numbers? How, how, do we, how do we measure that? Does that become a self-focused thing that's kind of like David when he counted the army that was an offense to God because it was all about our own strength? Um, that, that's a real 
danger for us. Uh, if, we, if we keep track, how do we do that? How, how do we determine, uh, you know, what that looks like? Do we have a thermometer on stage that each week it, you know, kind of bounces up or that kind of thing as, as, we, as we approach the 50,000? That seems, that seems kind of goofy. The, the second question that I've struggled with is this. What's it mean to impact someone with the grace of Jesus? Impact is a positive, uh, is a positive interaction that involves direct contact and affects someone's life personally. I don't know what that looks like for you, but it's, it's, it's not this nebulous, mystical kind of thing. It's, it's a direct contact with someone. The grace of Jesus is all about loving people as Jesus would. It's maybe an undeserved kindness, meeting a real or felt need. It's, it's trying to figure out how did Jesus respond to people? How did Jesus respond to the woman at the well? How did Jesus respond to the woman caught in adultery? How did Jesus respond to the religious leaders? How did Jesus respond to Jairus who came and said, my, my, my child has died? Impacting people with the grace of Jesus is interacting with them the way that Jesus would. So... Are we going to keep track? How, is it going to make it all about pride, all about us? No, no. actually, keeping track is not about celebrating us. It's about celebrating what God is doing. I think keeping track is important because it's so easy for us to be insulated and focus on ourselves. I'm saying to you this morning, I think we have become that. I believe in my heart that we have become complacent about the lost, complacent about being salt and light that Jesus says we are. We've become very satisfied to focus on the people who are here at North Point, the Christians who are in our circle of friends, and essentially say, to hell with everyone else. It's time for us to get off of our backsides and to take seriously the claims of Jesus as they relate to holiness, to eternity, to the lostness of our world. I'm saying that for me, and I'm saying that for us as a church. How do we keep track of people who are impacted by the grace of Jesus? Here's the plan. A couple of times a year, we're going to have a celebration Sunday where we have people tell stories of what God is doing in their lives or in the lives of people in their life group. On those Sundays, we're going to ask ministry leaders and life group leaders and individuals to write down, hey, since our last celebration Sunday, how many people have you impacted with the grace of Jesus? That may mean that you need to develop a 50 in 5 journal of some type where you can just write down, hey, this is what God's calling me to do and this is what I did and this was the result of that. It may be a big result, it may not be. But we're being faithful to God's call to be salt and light in our world. 50,000 is a big number. Will there be duplicates? I'm sure there will. Do we count people outside of the mid-Michigan region, outside of what we would consider North Point's market? Absolutely, because it's not our market. It's not our kingdom. It's God's. God wants to impact the world through us. We don't have a whole bunch of strategies worked out, but here's some things that are going on that you need to know about. At the end of March, we're going to host another food packing event 
We're partnering with an organization called Generosity Feeds, and it's different. It's a different kind of food packing event than we've done the last two where we've, where we've packed 60,000, 50,000 meals that have gone to Haiti uh, in, the, in the last two years. The thing that's different about this is that we're going to pack 10,000 meals, and those meals that are packed are going to stay locally here to help feed kids who are on free and reduced lunches in the Lansing area. Those meals will go to them on weekends, on nights that their parents are gone and that they won't have food. The other thing that's different is that we're going to partner with people in the community to do the food pack. We'll probably ask North Pointers not to be necessarily a part of the direct pack, but to pray for the people who are packing. We want to impact the people in the community who pack the food with the grace of Jesus. We want to impact the kids who receive the food with the grace of Jesus. And God, not North Point, will get the glory. The people who live in the Rotunda Trailer Park are being impacted with the grace of Jesus when Karen Hatler and Tina Kievsky and Christina Oski provide those residents with free haircuts. The people at City Rescue Mission in Lansing are being impacted by the grace of Jesus when Bob and Vicki Weller and Steve and Pat Relier and Kevin and Crystal Kane serve meals to people who are cold and hungry and homeless. Your neighbor is impacted with the grace of Jesus when you shovel their driveway or rake their leaves or fix them dinner or invite them to dinner at your house and love them as Jesus would. Your server at the restaurant is impacted with the grace of Jesus. The custodian in your building at work is impacted with the grace of Jesus. The person who's sitting alone in the park is impacted with the grace of Jesus. When you talk to them and really ask them, how are you doing? And have the kind of conversation that Jesus would have with them. It's not about an invitation to the church. It's not about sharing the plan of salvation with them, although either or both of those things may happen as the Holy Spirit leads. It's about intentionally caring for them as you would care for a close family member or a friend because of Jesus. 50,000 people in five years. North Point is a church that averages somewhere between five and 600 people in attendance every Sunday. To accomplish that vision... That means every person needs to impact 100 people with the grace of Jesus in the next five years. That's two people a month. If we can't consciously choose to impact two people a month with the grace of Jesus, people in a broken world that's decaying without hope, something is desperately wrong with us. We may not be followers of Jesus at all, let alone fully devoted ones. Because Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is the one who said, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Here's the question. Has your light gotten dull? Has your salt been put on a shelf? If so, what's caused that? Maybe it's apathy. 
Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's unrepented sin. Maybe it's different indifference. Maybe it's unbelief. Don't miss this fact. The darker the situation, the more light is needed. The more decay and corruption there is, the more salt is needed. Your presence gives hope, a new hope for a changed world. The challenge today is be salt and light where you are. It's easy for us to spend our lives seeking the spectacular. And we walk around every day missing the supernatural work of God in our lives. God is waiting to put his super on your natural to do something incredible. He wants to work in your normal where you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's pray. God, may today be a wake-up call for us. Move us, Lord, from our lethargy, from our apathy. Help us to see the incredible compliment, the incredible faith that you've placed in us, the incredible truth that Jesus said when he called us salt and light. Lord, forgive us if we've put our light under a bushel. Forgive us if we've kept our salt in a container and not allowed it to interact with the world around us. Open our eyes, God. Take off the scales. Help us to see what you have for us. That we may be your people, your church, doing your work in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.